Hello, this is Belinda Rhodes with Guardian Daily on Monday, January the 11th. Today, with the Mrs. Robinson scandal casting a long shadow over devolved government in Northern Ireland, how much longer can her husband survive as First Minister? Since it's emerged that these allegations that he may have, although he denies this, he may have uh, known about the £50,000 loan to her lover, the mood of the public has changed away from sympathy to anger, on bo- anger against both of them. After the death of a British newspaper correspondent in Afghanistan, we hear from The Guardian's man in Kabul. As this threat from IEDs has grown increasingly, if you're embedded as a journalist, you're also at risk yourself. And, you know, obviously it makes the whole thing much more uh, worrying. The 2010 Consumer Electronics Show ends in Las Vegas. We hear all about the latest gadgets and gizmos. Gordon Brown and Labour will attempt to start the week on a freshly united note, but new rumours threaten to throw him off course. Douglas Alexander has totally denied the allegation that um, he urged an early election because he feared that the more the electorate got to know Gordon Brown, the less they would like him. And with severe weather warnings still in place for parts of the country and ice melting elsewhere, will supplies of grit run out before the weather improves? Guardian Daily from guardian.co.uk So we begin with Northern Ireland and the political turmoil brought about there by last week's shocking revelations about Iris Robinson. Sunday newspapers in Northern Ireland were brimful of speculation and detail about her affair, her financial dealings, her mental state and even her whereabouts. And meanwhile, senior political figures began calling on her husband, First Minister Peter Robinson, to step down. I asked our Ireland correspondent, Henry MacDonald, if he thought Mr Robinson would last the week. I very much doubt it. Over the weekend I was speaking to Democratic Unionist Party members who didn't seem to think he would make it, that they may need another leader. And he's meeting his party officers today uh, for a critical meeting with them. But I suspect after the Panorama programme tonight, and I think further pressure, further embarrassing details, I would imagine he will be gone as First Minister. I'd be extremely surprised if he survives. And... What will happen if he does go? What, what does it mean for the future of devolved government? Well, I think the, the, the devolution power-sharing template will remain, but we may have another assembly. I think there is every possibility we may end up with fresh assembly elections, and that would pave the way for a new assembly, and we'll see where we are in terms of who's the largest party and can a coalition be founded. This is a very unstable period, and the DUP want to avoid an election at all costs, but they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they keep Peter Robinson as leader, it could have residual damage because of the scandal in the general election in May. But, of course, if they go for an election now, they'll, they'll pop, an assembly election, I should stress, they'll also probably lose seats. So it's it's a dilemma they're in, but I think the the inclination now within the party is that they need a new leader. And this has also come at a time when the the final, when it was hoped that the final pieces of of the devolution jigsaw, as it were, were, were it was hoped um, beginning to fall into place. W- where does it leave the the issues of of policing and justice? I think it parks policing and justice beyond the, the next assembly. Uh, Lord Morrow, who's a, a democratic unionist member of the House of Lords, in the midst of all the scandal and the the lurid details of the Robinsons' private life. Um, he's, he made a remark that he didn't think that there would be devolution of policing and justice uh, in the lifetime of this parliament now if he means the House of Commons it's only got five months to go anyway but perhaps he also meant uh, in the lifetime of this current assembly and that's what it's looking like it's looking like we are heading towards fresh elections 
So what's the mood amongst the public? I mean, is there is there much anger that Iris Robinson's affairs, her questionable financial dealings have have been allowed to um, to jeopardize the, the future of devolution? I think there's general anger with the, about the affair and about the financial dealings. And I do feel within the unionist community, there's a lot of sense of letdown. Remember, people like Iris Robinson have been quick in the past to quote the Bible and moralise about, for example, homosexuality. She got into a big tiff last year with the gay community by saying that homosexuality was an abomination which could could be cured by psychiatry. So there's a lot of people saying, you know, people in glass houses shooting through stones, and I think there is a lot of anger too. There was was anger against the Robinsons over their expenses, parliamentary expenses and and their wages, over, over half a million pound in one year. But this is really compounding it. And whereas people last Wednesday perhaps felt sorry for her husband when he gave that big confessional interview on on television and and was almost on the verge of breaking down, since it's emerged that these allegations that he may have, although he denies this, he may have uh, known about the £50,000 loan to her lover but did not report it to the parliamentary authorities, which he he should do as a minister in a code of conduct, the mood of the public has changed away from sympathy to anger anger against both of them. So... Yes, uh, the mood is the mood is quite vengeful out there at the moment. And is there, is it possible to say what the future might hold for Iris Robinson herself? She has no future in politics. She's been expelled from the Democratic Unionist Party at the weekend. She's been asked to step down as both an MP and uh, and, and an Assembly member. Someone I understand someone will be co-opted this week onto her seat for the Assembly for the constituency of Strangford. She's no she's no future in in politics, and I think her husband will have to go to the back benches. Uh, that's that's likely. He might come out and fight, but the mood over the weekend I, I detected among DUP members and supporters, and people who are, who are in the know in Stormont in the Parliament, is that we're looking towards a post Robinson future now. Henry Macdonald there, and you can of course find out more about that story on the Guardian's website at guardian.co.uk/politics. And elsewhere on the website today, you can read Chris McGreal's account of the crisis facing Native American reservations. That's at guardian.co.uk slash America. You can get all the latest on the African Cup of Nations, including how Friday's terrorist attack is affecting it, at guardian.co.uk slash football. And at guardian.co.uk slash comment, you can read Charlie Brooker's opinion on how Labour can win the election. A British journalist embedded with the US Marines in Afghanistan has been killed in an attack on a military convoy. Rupert Hammer, an experienced war correspondent with the Sunday Mirror, was travelling with photographer Philip Coburn, who was seriously injured. A US Marine and an Afghan soldier were also killed. I asked our Kabul correspondent John Boone for more on what happened. Well, it was in Nawa district of Helmand and uh, Rupert Hammer and his photographer were travelling with the US Marines. I understand they were travelling in something called an MRAP. That's pretty much the most heavily armoured vehicle you can travel in. It, this, these enormous vehicles were designed specifically to withstand the threats from IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you really can't have much better protection than that. So it's extremely unfortunate and also worrying for anyone who has to travel around areas of the south where there's an IED problem that in this case, tragically, the vehicle was not enough to to save um, the, the lives of everyone inside it. And so how does this leave correspondents feeling? How does this leave you feeling about your safety there? 
Well, I think it, it, it definitely makes everyone feel quite uneasy. Um, this is the uh, second death of a journalist um, who was embedded with the military in, within two weeks, and that's a, a cause of, of huge concern. I think a lot of us have, have recognised this problem as it's developed and really as this insurgency has moved away from small arms uh, gun battles between NATO forces and the Taliban insurgents and increasingly uh, it's a kind of technological battle as to who can build where insurgents try and build ever bigger IEDs and NATO forces try and uh, secure their men with ever ever more elaborate and expensive and and, and, and very, very large mine-resistant vehicles. But as this threat from IEDs has grown increasingly, if you're embedded as a journalist, you're also at risk yourself. And, you know, obviously it's, um, it, 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 it makes the whole thing much more... Uh, worrying for, for anyone going out into the field to write those sorts of stories. Because presumably in the past it was assumed that if you were embedded with the military you were safer than you would be if you were just on your own. Well, not necessarily. I mean, many journalists would argue that by being with the military you make yourself a target, and and that's certainly true. But even doing the unembedded journalism has also become increasing. Well, I won't say it's become increasingly fraught, but there have been cases um, really quite recently, including one involving The Guardian when a, um, a journalist was, was kidnapped in the east of the country. There are currently some French television journalists uh, being held um, captive by a, a group. We don't know if they're Taliban or just petty criminals. And that's the other risk that you run when you're not embedded. Um, the threat is obviously not so much from IEDs, but that one might become might be captured by um, by, by groups who are after money or, or just after, you know, some sort of a, have some sort of a political motive for um, taking people hostage. John Boone in Kabul there. And coming up later in the programme, Gordon Brown will attempt to present a united front this week, despite allegations in a Sunday newspaper about his unpopularity amongst colleagues. But first, the 2010 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas has ended after presenting a mixed bag of new products and gadgets. Guardian Daily's Scott Corley has been there throughout and sent this report. Well, there might have been a positive note in that attendance was up after just two days at this year's CES. There's been a notable lack of technological development in the show this year. And these visitors picked up on this during their time wandering the three aircraft hangar-sized exhibition halls. This whole 3D... Um, I, I don't get it. I think the consumer's going to vote no. I mean, it's a gigantic television that costs a lot of money that i got to wear glasses for, and I don't really see the benefit. It feels backward-facing to me that I, to, in, in order to enjoy technology, i got to put on a pair of glasses. That doesn't feel forward to me. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge show. I mean, it's uh, kind of draining a little bit. I think 3D was everywhere, uh, from TV to laptop. Uh, so it sounds like uh, it's really going to happen. This is where technology happens, and uh, so it's great to be part of it. The tone was set when the show kicked off on Wednesday with Microsoft boss Steve Ballmer delivering an underwhelming speech about how Microsoft intends to have a presence on your computer, phone, and television, and how the next generation of games controllers using gestures in the air will be available at the end of this year. So it's actually an evolution of existing products and technologies that's been a common theme across the displays here. 
3D has been pushed hard by any company with an interest in television and the choices between a set which will require the viewer to watch wearing special glasses or a screen which doesn't require glasses but probably requires some more development. I tried watching five minutes of a Chelsea-Portsmouth game in 3D on a Samsung set. Now football is going to be important as it's expected that this year's World Cup will help sell 3D televisions, though I thought that the result was actually disappointing, although other 3D material did look good. And if you just shelled out for a Blu-ray player for someone as a Christmas present, the bad news is that most manufacturers, Sony and Panasonic being the most notable, announced new models which will enable 3D, so now you'll need a new machine when you want to play back 3D discs. But this year the show suffered from being in the shadow of two other announcements from technology giants that haven't even been present at this year's event, Google and Apple. Last Tuesday Google launched the Nexus One phone and it's been the talk of all the delegates with an interest in mobile. Apple meanwhile have announced a keynote speech from boss Steve Jobs in two weeks time and the expectation is that he'll launch a tablet computing device. This has been anticipated by manufacturers here who have announced their own versions hoping to capitalise in on the renewed interest in what's actually an old idea. The most notable here has been the Lenovo U1. It's designed to work as a traditional netbook but it has a screen that unclips and can also be used as a standalone tablet. So while exhibitors are already being requested for next year's CES, it remains to be seen whether the two biggest developments in tech in 2010 will happen outside of this year's show. And that was Scott Corley in Las Vegas. Meanwhile, back in Britain, Gordon Brown will be hoping to present himself and his party in a new light this week, after last week's failed attack on his leadership. But Mr Brown, eager to present a united front and an appealing manifesto for the election, will not have been pleased about allegations by a former Labour General Secretary, Peter Watt, about the Prime Minister's leadership style and lack of vision. I asked The Guardian's political editor, Patrick Winter, how Gordon Brown will go about putting all this behind him. Well, I think the first thing he's going to do is to present a slightly more collegiate and collective leadership. So there will be a meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party, a private meeting this evening, and uh, he's making a point of ensuring that the the top three in the election campaign team beside himself will be there. So that will be uh, Peter Manson, Harriet Harman, who's the deputy leader, and Douglas Alexander, who's the election coordinator. And that in turn has some implications for what the campaign message will be because I think that's also been causing difficulties there's been this sometimes a sort of overt sometimes covert argument about whether the, the party should stress class whether it should be a core vote strategy the degree to which the party should be open about the need for some public spending cuts after the election and whether sort of code words such like as such as aspiration which is a way of reaching out to the middle classes should be uh, feature in the campaign and um, I think what um, number 10 is, is briefing is that aspiration will indeed be a big part of um, the election campaign so that there isn't going to be a, a war on the rich or on the um, middle classes, the aspirational middle classes, this will still be a traditional new Labour election campaign and um, the very fact that um, Lord Mandelson, Peter Mandelson will probably be confirmed as sort of director of strategy for the election ensures that will be the case. And what about allegations uh, in the Mail on Sunday yesterday um, by Peter Watt, a former Labour General Secretary, um, regarding Gordon Brown's leadership, saying that the way he ran Number 10 was a, a shambles and so on. Um, indeed, Douglas Alexander, who you mentioned there as, as being one of the campaign team, was mentioned in these revelations. How much impact do you think th these will have? 
Well, I think Labour MPs are of a mind now to sort of forget about internal rumblings. They'll be very cross with uh, the former General Secretary Peter Watt for writing this and for writing it in the Mail on Sunday and obviously writing it for some money. But um, nevertheless, it will strike a, a chord. It will, there will be an echo amongst many Labour MPs of the extent to which they feel Number 10 has not been well run under Gordon Brown's leadership. And I'm sure... Well, Douglas Alexander has totally denied the allegation that is that um, he urged an early election because he feared that the more the electorate got to know Gordon Brown, the less they would like him. And he was alleged to have said, uh, the truth is we've spent 10 years working with this guy and we don't actually like him. We've always thought that the longer the British public had to get to know him, the less they would like him as well. I mean, those are incredibly damaging words for an election coordinator to supposed to be said in private about um, the... Uh, the leader, I mean, as I say, he's denied it, but I, I think I've established uh, my satisfaction that um, words to that effect were said by Mr Alexander. And uh, James Purnell, former cabinet minister, writes in The Guardian today. What does he have to say? Well, he's stressing at the outset that Gordon Brown will be the um, the man to take Labour into the election. And he, he, he quit the, uh, the government last summer saying he didn't think Labour was electable under Gordon Brown. And um, he's... What he's trying to do in this article is to map out a kind of radical manifesto which he helps might galvanise, energise a party that's currently um, pretty bereft of new ideas for to taking people into a fourth term uh, manifesto. So he's got some specific ideas he wants to set out. But he also discloses that um, he had last summer been arguing the party should come up be more upfront about the issue of public expenditure cuts and an issue which has dogged the party um, ever since. So he's disclosed some of the reasons why he left um, last year, but he's also trying to set out a, what he regards as a radical election campaign theme, which bring, binds together many different wings of the party. It's quite an interesting article in itself, just coming from a former Blairite, in that he's very critical of aspects of Blairite politics and policies, uh, including the Third Way, which was sort of the sort of ideological underpinning of Tony Blair. And that was Patrick Winter, our political editor. And finally, while the political landscape may still be rather chilly, ice is beginning to melt in parts of the country. So the government, criticised by the opposition for their handling of grit supplies, may have been hoping for a big thaw before the grit completely ran out. But with severe weather warnings still in place for some parts of Britain, 12,000 tonnes of gritting salt were yesterday being sent to the worst-hit areas. The Guardian's Helen Carter is in Manchester with more on whether the grit will see us through. The situation nationally regarding grit at the moment is that the Transport Minister, Lord Adonis, has told local authorities to reduce the amount of grit they're using by 25%. That's to con conserve the uh, dwindling supplies that are left. The main producer of grit or salt in the UK is a company called the Salt Union in Cheshire, which has got a mine there, which produces 30,000 tonnes a week. And it normally has a large stockpile of salt, which it you know, directly distributes to local authorities. However, the stockpile is completely gone, and they will have to start uh, mining directly from their mines and then distributing it so it will dramatically reduce the output. So it could be some time before the necessary levels uh, of salt are, are, are there, back to normal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the government has ordered further supplies of salt from Spain and the US, but they're not going to arrive for another 12 days. Um, hopefully, you know, the weather will improve over the next few weeks, but 
certainly over the next nine days, there are going to be sub-zero temperatures overnight, which are, is not going to improve the situation at all. So it's likely to be problematic for the next uh, few days. However, there is the SALT cell, which is a kind of contingency plan that's been brought in with local authorities, the highway agency, the Department for Transport, and they're overseeing the supply of uh, grit to local authorities. So they're meeting again tomorrow on Tuesday. But there has already been a, a good deal of criticism from the public about there not being any grit on the roads, um, and you know, obviously about road conditions being dangerous. So if, if the government is, is saying that the amount used needs to be reduced by 25%. What does, what does that spell for um, road conditions in the, in the week to come? Um, I guess it's not going to be good news for people who live on B roads and some A roads. You know, conditions certainly where I live are uh, particularly bad on the side roads, but, you know, I guess you just have to stick to the main roads and if you live on a side road, there's not a lot you can do. Helen Carter there, and that's all from Guardian Daily today. The producers were Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm Belinda Rhodes. Thanks for listening.